attention. Behold, thou shalt come to grieve below here. Graffito written in Phoenician from the entrance to the tomb of King Ahiram of Byblos, circa 1000 BCE. Welcome to A History of the Jewish People, Episode 5, The Neighbors. As I mentioned at the end of the last episode, we're going to take a step back from the narrative to meet the peoples neighboring the Israelites and the superpowers of the Near East. A lot has changed since we last took a tour of the region in the late Bronze Age, so we'll have quite a bit of catching up to do. We'll be doing this sort of spiral, first looking at the peoples to the east of Palestine and Transjordan, sweeping southward, before looking west to the Philistines, north to the Phoenicians, northeast to the Aramaeans, and then outward to Egypt and Assyria. As you might expect, this episode will be filled with names of peoples and places, so maps are on the website if you'd like to follow along. This show is, naturally, centered around the people of Israel and the land of Palestine. And it should be. It is, after all, a history of the Jewish people. But when looking at the history of the Israelites, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, and then even the Jewish people after the Babylonian exile, it can be easy to see their story as exceptional. And in many respects, it is exceptional. Few ethnic groups in the modern world can trace their roots as far back or have survived as many hardships as the Jewish people. But it can also become easy to assume that the people of Israel were exceptional from the beginning, and to look at their stories with an eye towards the future, and not to their own times. The goal of this episode, then, is two sides of the same coin. On one side, we'll aim to put the people of Israel in the broader context of the Iron Age II Near East. We'll create a map around Israel to better get to know those at the center of our story. This will help us illuminate the story of the Jewish people and understand how they were lucky enough to survive while the Philistines, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Aramaeans, and even the Assyrians did not. On the other side of the metaphorical shekel, creating this map around the Israelites will also help us to decentralize them, to show that their story was not unique, at least not yet. As we'll see, the Israelites were in the middle of the pack in terms of the development of Iron Age states, being more developed than the Ammonites, Moabites, and Edomites, but far less advanced than the Phoenicians, let alone the Assyrians or Egyptians. We'll begin our tour just to the east of Palestine, with the lands of Ammon and Moab. At our point in the story, some Israelites of the tribe Manasseh actually also live across the Jordan River in the land known as Gilead. Supposedly during the United Monarchy, in the times of Saul, David, and Solomon, the people of Israel also expanded their kingdom deep into Transjordan, but this biblical claim seems dubious. But of course, the people of Israel were not the only ones living to the east of the Jordan River. To the south of the Kinneret, the Sea of Galilee, lived the Ammonites, and to the south of them, up until the bottom of the Dead Sea, lived the Moabites. Of the peoples we will encounter this episode, the peoples of Ammon and Moab are the most similar both to each other and to the people of Israel. During the Iron Age I, Ammon and Moab were essentially indistinguishable from Israel. Quite likely, these peoples shared origins with the Israelites. The peoples of Ammon and Moab probably emerged from the Shasu groups and settled around the same time as the Israelites did. Early on, pottery finds and settlement patterns were shared between the groups. They also had a similar writing system, 
though attested from a later date than Israelite inscriptions, and they spoke similar Canaanite languages. The Ammonites and the Moabites probably also worshipped in a similar way, as the Israelites did. As we discussed back in episode 2, the Shasu of yud vav Aleph may have been the ancestors of the Israelites. The peoples of Ammon didn't share this god, but each had their own national deity, in addition to local Canaanite gods. Ammon's patron deity was Milcom, while Moab's was Kamosh. Perhaps if one of these groups survived instead of the Israelites, we would be praying to Milcom or Kamosh instead of to the Israelite god. From what we can tell, the Ammonites and Moabites were not quite on equal footing with the Israelites, however. The Israelites were more populous and held more fertile land. They developed a state earlier than did their Transjordan cousins, and subsequently dominated them for much of the Iron Age too. In the 9th to 7th centuries BCE, Ammon and Moab would also coalesce into kingdoms, and by then they had all developed animosity towards one another. The Book of Genesis, likely written during this period, captures this Israelite feeling of superiority in its genealogies. Abraham's nephew, Lot, has two daughters who tricked their father into incestuously conceiving their children. These women each bear a son-slash-grandson of Lot. The elder daughter gives birth to Moab, whose name literally means from the father. The younger daughter gives birth to Ben-Ami, whose descendants become the Ammonites. While this story certainly isn't true, it does reveal the Israelites' attitude toward their eastern cousins, as well as the fact that they considered themselves to be cousins. It also shows us that the Ammonites and the Moabites were considered siblings to each other, so closely related that they had few material differences. There were, however, some deeper cultural differences between Israel and Ammon and Moab during the Iron Age. Ammon and Moab, despite likely being poorer countries, produced monumental sculptures and inscriptions unlike anything from Israel. Perhaps this says more about Israel than it does about Ammon and Moab, as a lack of human sculpture could indicate an aversion to idolatry. Regardless, we have a decent amount of Ammonite and Moabite statuary, much of which shows Egyptian influence. Images of some of these pieces are, of course, on the website. We also have the impressive Mesha stela from the period, the second among a long list of stelae recording victories over Israel. We'll discuss the Mesha stela when we reach the late 9th century BCE in the narrative. Beyond those pieces, however, the best records we have of the Ammonites and Moabites come from the Tanakh. Unlike the Israelites, the Ammonites and the Moabites did not survive past the Iron Age as a distinct ethnic group, so whatever writings they produced were lost to time. From the biblical account, we can learn that the Moabites, at least, seem to have practiced a form of human sacrifice of war captives, a practice that, incidentally, is also attested for the Israelites. Moabite and Israelite writings both depict the other group as a mortal enemy. The story is much the same for Edom, the land to the south of Moab. The Edomites also likely emerged from a group of Shatu and worshipped their own national god, Kos, and the book of Genesis also gives them a matching genealogy. Whereas Ammon and Moab were great nephews of Abraham, the Edomites were said to be descendants of the great Jewish patriarch. The Israelites were said to be descended from Jacob, also known as Israel, while the Edomites were descended from his brother Esau. Edom seemed to have developed later than Israel, Ammon, or Moab, since it was located in the arid region to the south of the Dead Sea. Despite their late start, 
the Edomites will actually remain in our story. Unlike the Ammonites and the Moabites, who gradually faded away after the end of the Iron Age, the Edomites stuck around as a distinct ethnic identity until the days of the Hasmoneans. The kingdom of the Maccabees would later forcibly convert the Edomites, then known as the Edomans, who would ultimately merge with the Jewish population. Probably the most famous Edoman was actually King Herod, the builder of Masada and the renovator of the Second Temple. Continuing on around the highlands of Palestine, we'll now stop at Philistia. Like the Israelites, the Philistines underwent some major changes as they settled into their new homes in Palestine. We covered the Palestine Sea people and the subsequent settlement of the Philistines along the Canaanite coast in episode 2. At that time, the Philistines were culturally Mycenaean. They retained that heritage over the following centuries, but also blended with the local Canaanites to create a more hybrid culture. As we've repeatedly stressed over the last few episodes, the Tanakh clearly portrays the Philistines as the Israelites' main rivals, a state of affairs that is reflected in the archaeological record. In fact, in many ways, the Philistines mirrored the Israelites. While the Israelites seemed to have come from the east, the Philistines came from the west. The Israelites settled the highlands, and the Philistines the lowlands. They also both ended their political existence in the 6th century BCE, in the wake of the Babylonian onslaught. In the Iron Age I, the hallmarks of Israelite settlements, the three or four room house, and a type of pottery known to archaeologists as collar rim jars, were found throughout the highlands of both Palestine and Transjordan, but were almost completely absent from Philistine settlements. On the flip side, Philistine towns were marked by pig consumption and bichrome pottery, both of which were largely absent from Israelite sites. By the 10th century, however, the Philistines were beginning to lose much of their Jean heritage. Pigs, while still frequently eaten, were no longer the staple of the Philistine diet. They also stopped producing the hallmark bichrome red and black decorated pottery. Surviving inscriptions suggest that the Philistines would have been speaking Canaanite language in the Iron Age too. DNA analyses have even revealed that the Philistines quickly lost much of their unique Aegean heritage, intermarrying enough with the Canaanites to merge with the local population. But in no way does this all mean that the Philistines themselves went away. Instead, the Philistines underwent a process of acculturation between the Iron Age 1 and 2 periods. Even if the Philistines looked, spoke, and acted much like the Israelites of the Iron Age too, both groups considered themselves to be distinct, and consciously maintained their ethnic identities. Politically, the Philistines reached their high-water mark towards the end of the 11th century BCE, when they settled along the southern coast of Palestine in the late 13th to mid-12th centuries BCE, the Philistines at first occupied only the Pentapolis, the five cities of Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, Gaza, and Gat. These centers were independent, but all seemed to have worked together and shared a common culture. Perhaps in response to this expansion, the first Israelite states began to form, bringing an end to Philistine prosperity. The early monarchy seems to have stopped the Philistines from being a real threat to the emerging Israel, which began to dominate Palestine. The Philistines, however, would still hold on and would be a continued presence right up until the Babylonian conquest. Moving north, past the stretch of the Mediterranean coast controlled by the Israelites, we next come to Phoenicia. 
Really, we should be calling the Phoenicians Canaanites, because that's actually what they would call themselves. But history, aka the Greeks, called them Phoenicians, and so will I. And really, we should call them the people of Dor, Akko, Tyre, Sarepta, Sidon, Beirut, Byblos, Telkazel, Arwad, and numerous other city-states along the Levantine coast. Though these peoples shared a common culture and language, with local variations and dialects, their primary affiliations would have been with their own cities and families. Some cities, especially those in the south, seem to have mixed with some of the sea peoples, but the local Canaanite affiliation was far more dominant in Phoenicia than it was in Philistia. The term Phoenicia may actually be derived from the Greek word for the highly valuable purple dye produced by the Levantines from the secretion of sea snails. The Romans then picked up the term and gave us the word Punic to refer to the language and people of Carthage, which began as a Phoenician colony. If hearing the word Phoenicians brings anything to mind, it's probably the alphabet. It's often said, including on this show, that the Phoenicians invented the alphabet, and that is true in some respects. Almost all modern alphabets can trace their origins through the Phoenicians, though it's difficult to use the word invent when dealing with a concept like alphabetic writing. The Phoenicians had a 22-letter script, which seems to have been the first standardized alphabetic script of its kind. Like all Semitic alphabets, it's technically an abjad, meaning that only consonants were written, with vowels being omitted. The Phoenicians, like the ancient Israelites, actually borrowed their script from another Semitic people, Canaanites working for the Egyptians in the Sinai Peninsula. The Proto-Sinaitic alphabet, as that writing system was known, caught on among the Canaanite population of the Levant. Two things made the Phoenician version of that alphabet special. The first was that it was more or less standardized. Take a look at the images of the Kherbet Kaafa Ostrakhan posted along with episode 4. While the artifact is rich today, the writing is not up to our modern standards, to say the least. Many letters are rotated at a whim and are written very sloppily. Phoenician inscriptions, by comparison, actually look nice. The second, and probably more important, reason that the Phoenician alphabet was special was the success of the Phoenicians themselves. They lived along the coastline and were mercantile people, trading throughout the Mediterranean and the Near East. As has always been the case with trade routes, ideas flowed along with their goods. The alphabet was picked up by the Greeks, who passed it on to the Etruscans and then to the Romans. The Aramaeans, whom we'll visit soon, also picked up the Phoenician alphabet. The Aramaic alphabet was then picked up by the Jewish people after Babylonian exile, making the modern Hebrew script a lineal descendant of Phoenician, not the ancient Hebrew one. Despite the fame that the Phoenicians won with their creation of the alphabet, we have unfortunately few records of their own. The history of Tyre is probably the best known, though its records are almost all gone, preserved only in the work of Flavius Josephus, a Roman Jewish historian whom we will meet later on. Tyre will also be the most important of the Phoenician city-states from the perspective of ancient Israel, as it was home of the famous, or miraculously infamous, Queen Jezebel. Byblos, known to the ancients as Gubla, produced the most inscriptions from the early Iron Age, including the one we quoted at the start of this episode. Many of these inscriptions, and the objects inscribed, display a high level of craftsmanship superior to anything extant from Israel at the time. 
We began this episode with a quote from a short graffito in the entrance to the tomb of King Ahiram of Byblos. Frankly, I would have liked to read from the sarcophagus of King Ahiram, but it was actually a bit too long to read in its entirety, a problem we haven't encountered yet with Hebrew inscriptions. I've posted pictures of Ahiram's sarcophagus and of a pair of bronze inscribed spatulas on the website, so you can take a look at the artistry of these pieces, contemporary with the much poorer writing of Khirbet Kaafa. The next group we'll visit are the Aramaeans who lived to the north of the Sea of Galilee in modern-day Syria, east of the Phoenicians. The Aramaeans were physically between the Phoenicians and the Ammonites, and were culturally between the groups as well, with one key distinction. They were not Canaanite. Like their southern neighbors, the Aramaeans came from a group of nomads with kinship-based societies that had long been indigenous to the Levant. The Aramaeans were the Northwest Semitic people, closely related to, yet distinct from, the Canaanites. This makes them slightly more distantly related to the Israelites than were the Ammonites, Moabites, Edomites, and Phoenicians, all of whom spoke Canaanite languages. Like the Phoenicians, the Aramaeans quickly developed into numerous and wealthy states, a process accelerated for the Aramaeans by their proximity to the burgeoning Luvian and Neo-Hittite states. Aramaean dynasties began to appear in the 10th century BCE, and royal inscriptions soon followed. The earliest inscriptions were not in Aramaic, however, but rather in Phoenician, possibly because the language had become prestigious. Inscriptions in Aramaic would appear shortly afterward. The Aramaeans, like the Edomites, left a legacy on Judaism far beyond the scope of the kingdom they ruled. The last Aramaic states were toppled in the 7th century BCE, but the Aramaeans would continue their cultural dominance of the region until the Arab conquest in the 7th century CE. For now, the only Aramaic state worthy of remembering is the kingdom of Aram Damascus, predictably centered around the city of Damascus. Aram Damascus will shortly join Egypt and Moab on the list of kingdoms with stelae commemorating victories over Israel. That brings us then to Egypt, still located to the southwest of Palestine, in case you've forgotten. I won't spend too much time on Egypt since it's rather their general absence from Palestine that'll most impact the Israelites. That, and the sweeping raid that Sheshonk will soon carry out throughout Israel. Anyway, since we last visited the Nile, the pharaohs lost quite a bit of power over their once mighty empire. The new kingdom, Egypt's Golden Age, which had begun the 16th century BCE, finally collapsed in the 11th century BCE. The Meshwesh, a sea people from Libya, had taken control. Frankly, this period, known as the Third Intermediate Period, gets the short end of the stick in Egyptology. Though their empire shrunk, the Egyptians continued to produce bountiful harvests and beautiful works of art, including the not famous enough Silver Mummy. If asked which pharaoh was the only one whose tomb had never been opened until the modern day, most people would answer King Tut without another question. But Tutankhamun's tomb was actually entered twice in antiquity, while the dazzling tomb and mummy of Susenes I was left untouched. It was discovered in 1940 by the French archaeologist Pierre Monte, but the discovery was quite reasonably overshadowed by World War II. Why am I telling you all of this? Well, because it's one of the greatest treasures absolutely no one has heard of. Anyway, that's all we'll say about Egypt today. 
check out the History of Egypt podcast if you want to learn more. It's the first history podcast I got hooked on, and I'd highly recommend it. For now, onward to the Assyrians. You know how action movie franchises will start out with the bad guy just trying to destroy a city or a couple of planets, and then suddenly a few movies later, the whole universe is being threatened? Think about Star Wars. In Episode 4, the Empire rolls out their big, bad, and appropriately named Death Star with the capability to destroy planets. And then they give it another go in Episode 6. Then when the sequels come out, suddenly there's the bigger and badder Star Killer that can incinerate more planets and faster. It's like they think that the solution to fans getting bored by the same storylines is just to make the weapons bigger and the enemies scarier. Well, the point of this tangent is that if the Philistines were the Death Star of the Israelites, the Assyrians would be Starkiller on steroids. The Syrians have been in the game for a long time, and, like the Egyptians, they fell into a period of weakness following the late Bronze Age collapse. Unlike the Egyptians, the Assyrians were not down for good, and would soon spread to control the entire Fertile Crescent and even Egypt for a brief period. As with the Philistines, then, it might be possible to view Assyria as just the opponent of the Kingdom of Israel, and as an empire with massive armies. Assyria will be all of that, but first it was a city-state that boasted a rich and quintessentially Mesopotamian culture. I came across the following quote in my research from Karen Radnor's book, Ancient Assyria, A Very Short Introduction, and frankly, I couldn't beat her words. On the first page, Radnor writes, quote, Assyrian culture is at once familiar and strange. We may share the Assyrian taste for good wines, but perhaps would not choose locusts on a stick for nibbles. A fresh water supply, indoor toilets, and a well-functioning sewage system in the family home are as important to us as to urban Assyrians, but we may find it less essential to have an underground burial chamber accessible from the living room. We may congratulate Assyrian buyers on enjoying consumer protection and extended warranties, but are perhaps taken aback to find that these extended to the purchase of people who are subject to a 100-day guarantee against epilepsy and mental instability. The foldable parasol was a practical and serious invention, but Karangwon was dangerous. Its use was exclusively reserved to royalty, and without entitlement was an act of treason. We too enclose letters in envelopes, but they are not made out of clay. End quote. The Assyrians, like all the peoples we discussed today, save for the Egyptians, were Semitic, though they lived very different lifestyles than the poor Israelite farmers or the nomads among the Edomites. Assyria was old, like Damascus or Jerusalem, but it had maintained high population, literacy, and a rich material culture for millennia. When Assyria is momentarily weak following the late Bronze Age, we still know the names and the regnal years of all their kings, and we still see their writing on clay tablets. Assyria never truly goes dark in the same way that Israel does. Which brings me to another distinction of the Assyrians. While the Assyrians did speak a Semitic language, theirs was an e-Semitic tongue considered to be a dialect of Akkadian. Instead of using an alphabet derived from Egyptian hieroglyphs, the Assyrians used a cuneiform system of writing descended from the ancient Sumerian system. They also used clay as a writing surface instead of papyrus, for which we in the modern day are very lucky. Clay preserves extremely well, so we have Assyrian writings ranging from royal inscriptions to grocery lists and educational tablets. 
Honestly, after spending so long researching the heated debates in biblical archaeology that revolve around such little archaeological data, it's been pretty refreshing to read up on the Assyrians with their detailed records and standardized history. If anyone wants to start a podcast on Mesopotamian, Assyrian, or Babylonian history, the market is wide open and the material is plentiful. Assyrian civilization began at least in the 3rd millennium BCE in the city-state of Ashur, named for the local deity of the same name. It was ruled successively by the Akkadian Empire and then by the Neo-Sumerian Empire before regaining independence in the 21st century BCE. As was the case for the early Israelites, the Assyrians considered their god to be their king, with a hereditary leader acting only on behalf of the deity. The Bronze Age people of Ashur also practiced a sort of collective governance in convening the city assembly. In the late Bronze Age, Ashur saw an opportunity to play the game of empire, capitalizing on the weakness of their overlords, the Mitanni. It worked, and the newly minted Assyrian Empire quickly conquered much of Mesopotamian Syria. Their power diminished during the late Bronze Age, but the Assyrians managed to stay well afloat and even to maintain their professional army and chariot corps. They expanded yet again during the reign of Tiglath-Pileser I, between the 12th and 11th centuries BCE. We'll be hearing much more about his descendant and namesake, Tiglath-Pileser III, when we reach the 8th century BCE. Back at the start of the 10th century BCE, however, the Assyrian Empire had been reduced and confined to the east of the Euphrates River. Towards the end of the 10th century, the Assyrians, now based in the cities of Ashur, Nineveh, and Nimrud, began to methodically push the borders of their territory. In the 9th century, they'll start bothering the Israelites, and then in the 8th century BCE, they'll be the ones to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, a formative event in the development of Judaism and of the Tanakh. The fights between the Israelites and their neighbors will be mere skirmishes compared to the war they'd wage against the Assyrians. And with that, we've passed 4,000 words, which means it's time to start wrapping up this week's episode. All of the peoples we've discussed today will play an important role in the history of the Israelites to come, and I'll keep reminding you of who they are when they become relevant. And by when they become relevant, I, of course, usually mean when they invade the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. But before we cover those invasions, we'll have to discuss the origins of the divided monarchy. Next episode, we'll be taking a look at the reign of King Solomon, the city of Jerusalem, and the controversial remains of Gezer, Chazor, and Megiddo. In Solomon, we'll see the end of the golden age of the United Monarchy, if the biblical account is to be believed. Until then, you can find us on our lengthily addressed website, historyofthejewishpeople.wordpress.com. You can also reach us by email at historyofthejewishpeople at gmail.com or through Instagram at historyofthejewishpeople. One of these days I'll get around to setting up Facebook and Twitter accounts, but until that happens, you're stuck with those options. Please also leave us rating, or even better, a review, yada yada yada. The music for this episode was, as always, written and produced by Jacob Shaw. And finally, I hope you tune in next time for episode 6, The Builder.